you have to create this environment that the person's comfortable in. That's a, a big part of it. And I don't actually like to use the word interview, especially when I coach people or advise people who are starting podcasts. You don't ever want to use the word interview because interview implies question, answer, question, answer, question, answer. Whereas a conversation, it's a, a back and forth. It's people sharing ideas. Welcome to Audio Branding, the hidden gem of marketing. Sound plays a more important role in human behavior and our decision-making than you may realize. In this podcast, I'll help you understand the art and science of sound so you can better influence others in business and your life. I'm your host, Jody Krangle. Let's delve a little deeper. This is the first part of my interview with Joe Partavila. My next guest has produced over 10,000 hours of audio content over the course of his career in podcasting and terrestrial radio. He was a radio personality and producer on the legendary New York City radio station 95.5 PLJ, where he was part of the iconic Scott and Todd in the Morning. He studied sketch and improv comedy at the Upright Citizens Brigade and was a founding member and actor in the New York-based sketch comedy group Clip Show. The group performed at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater and the People's Improv Theater, and their video sketches were featured on Funny or Die and The Huffington Post. He is the co-director, writer, and producer of the award-winning horror satire, The Witches of Bushwick. Currently, he serves as the director of podcasts for Advantage Media Group, Forbes Books. His name is Joe Partavila, and as you can probably tell, he's spent much of his life understanding good audio and good conversation. His book, Good Listen, talks about the secrets behind creating compelling conversations and powerful podcasts. Sounds like he'll fit right in here, so let's get to it. As always, if you have questions for my guest, you're welcome to reach out through the links in the show notes. And if you have questions for me, visit audiobrandingpodcast.com, where you'll find a lot of ways to get in touch. Plus, subscribing to the newsletter will let you know when the new podcasts are available. And now, here's my interview with Joe Partavila. Hey there, Joe. Thank you so much for joining me. This is uh, a little intimidating, I have to say, because, you know, I'm kind of interviewing the interviewer. <laughs> well, it's even harder for me because all I do is be the interviewer. So being the interviewee is a little harder for me, too. So I think we're in the same boat. OK, so we'll just power through. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we'll absolutely. make it work. <laughs> we might as well. We're here. Yeah, we're here. Why not? Yeah. So I'd like to start off by asking you if you have an early memory of how sound moved you. I get some of the most interesting stories from that. <laughs> well, the, usually this story dates me because my I kind of fell in love with radio by listening to sports radio when I was a little kid. And the reason being was when I was growing up, there was no Internet. There was no Twitter. There was no ESPN.com. So right the only you. way you can... F yeah, Jody, we are in the same Gen X uh, card yes, carrying members. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what I remember most was when I was a little kid, when I don't know if you're how familiar you are with baseball, but baseball there at the end of July, there's always a trading deadline. So it's basically when the, the last chance for teams to fix up their clubs, make trades, make any kind of moves. And during the time of my youth, and the Mets were actually pretty good. They've had some peaks and valleys, the New York Mets. Um, I don't know how much you followed uh, Jody, but they're sort of like the Not redheaded. Not much at all, to be honest. Okay. But yeah. Well, but I'll take well, your you, word for it. <laughs> well, well, you know the Yankees. They're sort of like the yes. redheaded stepsister of the Yankees. So they've always had struggles. So the only time 
that the Mets could improve themselves when they were doing well was around this trading deadline. So the only way for me to find out what they were doing was to listen to the radio. And the trading deadline was always around midnight in Eastern Standard Time Zone, but then it would also be midnight Pacific. So when the when it came down to this time of year, I would be in my bedroom underneath my blankets listening to my little radio till three o'clock in the morning to see what the Mets had done. And it was the only way to find out if they had pulled off a trade. And then the, the host would be live on the air and then he would take calls from from all the listeners who were like weighing in on these trades, the trades that they made or didn't make. And then all of a sudden you had uh, th- that was sort of my connection to the uh, to the uh, to the way. I sort of fell in love with radio and the the, the early uh, ways of the of how I sort of really connected with the intimacy of it. Like it was just me mm-hmm. underneath my blanket listening to the radio in the middle of the night while the rest of my house was asleep. I love it. Yeah. And yeah. I guess that's kind of what got you started in thinking of radio as a professional career. I mean, because you ended up doing that in New York and I'm just yeah. curious what that was like. <laughs> Yeah. So what happened to me was I I was always radio wasn't always like my first love in terms of like a job because I didn't know that was a job. Like to me, I was like, that doesn't seem like a real job as (laughs) as it turned out. It shouldn't be. That (laughs) should be illegal. So uh, what happened was uh, when I was in college, uh, I went to a state school in New Jersey called William Patterson and they were basically known for their communications department. They, I mean, it was a state school. It's been around for years, but I only went there because of their communication program. And this is around the early nineties. And they had just built this state of the art TV and radio facility in Wayne, New Jersey, in the suburbs of New Jersey, about 40 miles from Manhattan. And I went in there with the intention of being on TV. So I walked down to this brand spanking new TV state station that they had there. And I go, I want to be on TV. And they're like, well, we don't put freshmen on TV. And I was like, oh, that sucks. So I walked down the hall to the radio station and uh, I went to the to the guy running the, the station. And I say, um, what's what's going on? Can I be on the radio? And the guy goes, what time? And I'm like, oh, OK, it's nice. that easy. <laughs> that It's a, a very the low. It's a low barrier of entry to get into radio. Yes. So. Um, so I so I immediately started like went in head first, loved doing it. And for some reason, I am a self self-professed, not very bright. But for some reason, I had the wherewithal to be like, hey, listen, I'm, I'm a sophomore in college. If I want to make this my career, I need to know if I like it or not. The only way I'm going to like it or not is if I go and actually either get a job or an internship. So which is rare for kids, because w- one thing I came to realize was most didn't take internships up till like their junior or senior year. So they, they they waited late in the game to do so. But for some reason, I had this wherewithal. Applied for a couple internships in radio in in New York City, and I was a kid growing up in the Jersey suburbs. So to go into New York was a big deal. Like it was like you would only go in if you were going for the tree lighting or going for like a the you know Natural Museum of History sure, that kind of yeah. thing. So the idea of me going into the city by myself seemed daunting. So what it turned out was I got accepted to two of them. One of them was in uh, Upper Manhattan, like in the like in the fifties and sixties of Manhattan. But the radio station I the other one I applied for was WPLJ, and they were located in above Penn Station and Madison Square Garden. So if you're not familiar, basically it's Midtown Manhattan. It's smack in the middle, and it's this huge transit hub that you could essentially take a train from anywhere in the tri-state area to this location. So. PLJ with its great location was 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 perfect for me. I was like, oh, this is fantastic. I could take the path train from New Jersey, go into go straight into Manhattan. I don't have to worry about getting on a subway or anything like that. I'm basically in 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 the studio right out right right off the train. So I and it 
I ended up loving it. And it turned out that I got very fortunate. At the end of my internship, they had a immediate opening in the promotion department. They were all of a sudden, they were like scrambling. Like, And summertime for these top 40 stations is sort of like their peak time. As you'll know, when you're out and about, you'll see the radio station vans, when they used to do this, out at beaches and events during the middle of summer. So yeah, they're, sure. they're very active. Yeah. So I decided that I wanted to see if I could stick around. So they, I go up to them and they say, hey, listen, we have this position. Uh, do you want it? I'm like, yeah, I'd love it. Uh, and they said, well, the one thing is it's a full-time job, so you'd have to drop out of school. And I didn't have to think twice about it. I was like, sure, what, who needs school? Uh, and then that sort of opened my w world up because at that point it became a full-time job. I, was, I, I, I still wasn't even legally able to drink, but I was, had my first paycheck in radio. I was 20 years old. Wow. And uh, I just worked my way up through the company. I was, uh, and I didn't realize that I was impressing people at the time. Again, n n I had no self-awareness when I was a kid. I've, I th think I've improved my self-awareness, but my self-awareness as a kid was awful. Um, so it turned out that people seemed to like what I was doing. I was doing a lot of, like, a lot of emceeing at events and just, they kept promoting me through the company. I ended up w uh, running the morning show by the time that the radio station was, uh, was blown up in uh, 2019. Wow. Yeah, that's a that's a pretty big story. So, yeah, the the idea of being at the radio station sounds like it was a very um, like a crash course in communication. <laughs> yeah, it totally was. And I the, the guys I ended up working with, uh, there were Scott and Todd, one, uh, mm -hmm. Scott Shannon and Todd Pattengill. Scott, if you're not familiar, was this radio legend. He's basically the one who reinvented Top 40 radio in the 1980s and just took Z100 as probably people even outside of the New York market know what Z100 is. So he was he was essentially the the person who pioneered that station and he ended up leaving Z100 and and working at PLJ in the mid 90s and that's when I came on board with the radio station at at the at its peak in the mid 90s. Um and I learned so much from him and the co-host Todd Pettengill and I always say I may have not gone to college but I went to the school of Scott and Todd because everything I learned about oh, yeah. communications and radio were from two of the best. I mean, Scott is in multiple radio hall of fames. Todd was the youngest New York radio host in the history of the market. I think he was 25 when he got hired to be the co-host of the morning show at PLJ. So just incredible talents that I just like sucked up all their knowledge and wisdom from over the years. Yeah. So much education there. Wow. So yeah. yeah, lots to learn too. It's, it's funny how little we really know about communication when it comes right down to it. You'd think absolutely be really good and, at this. <laughs> yeah, no, I, no, and especially in radio too, which I felt like I was making sort of a mental ledger of all the things they were doing that I disagreed with or didn't like how they did it. So I was like, the stuff they did well, I was like, okay, that's cool. I want to put them in my back pocket. I'll do that in the future. But then stuff that I didn't like, I was like, nah, I never want to do that. So it, it, that's one thing people don't realize about mentors and mentorship is like, it's not only the good things that you could learn from your mentors, but it's also the bad things because mentors, as much as we we lean into that word nowadays, like everyone's always looking for a mentor, it's not always the positives you get out of the mentor. It's like what the mentor has screwed up that you can learn from that I feel is just as important as all is the wise lessons they can, they can hand down to you. Definitely. And yeah, you can learn from their mistakes instead of making them yourself. <laughs> Absolutely. No doubt. That's a good thing. Are you looking for ways to improve your company's or podcast's impact? You'd be surprised how powerful the use of an intentional audio branding strategy can be. Want to know more? I have a free downloadable PDF that gives you my five tips for implementing an intentional audio strategy at voiceoversandvocals.com slash audio branding strategy. That location does ask to put you on a mailing list. 
just to send you updates on when the new podcasts come out. But if you really don't want to give your email out, I understand. Just contact me directly. My email is all over my website. And I'll make sure you get that PDF without needing to sign up anywhere. If you do sign up, though, you also get access to a resources section called The Studio, where I have videos, white papers and PDFs, discounts from my guests, and snippets of audio from my guests that no one else gets to hear. So maybe it's worth your while. Totally up to you. And of course, if you're looking for voiceovers, you can get in touch with me about that too. Now, back to the podcast. So from here, like you went into the radio, you did all of those wonderful things. You had all those great um, interviews and you did a lot of research um, while you were doing that. So, you know, thinking on your feet all became a part of what you were doing and then podcasting. So how did that happen? (laughs) So I was fortunate enough to, to read the tea leaves and I wish I had done more podcasting earlier in my career. I just didn't have the bandwidth. I was doing a, my morning show was on from six to 10 in the morning. So I was waking up at three o'clock every day, prepping, getting a show done, doing post-production and then getting ready for the next show. So it didn't really allow me a lot of extra time. There was, <laughs> there's not a lot of downtime. And the fact that I was waking up so early, I was going to bed earlier than most human beings. So the time of day that you could to, um, to sort of improve yourself and do other things was very limited. So towards the end of my run at PLJ, um, I was like, I want to do podcasting, but I don't want to do the same thing I'm doing on the air. So our our show is I like to call a soccer mom station. Our our target <laughs> demographic was adults 25, 54, mainly women. Okay. Yep. Um, so it was that sort of I don't want to say it was like G rated radio, but it was like PG 13, whereas like we would do some innuendo, but be like the only the parents would be able to get it, not the kids in the car, because we have to <laughs> sure. keep that in mind that it yeah. wasn't just the parents listening. It was the kids as well, especially during the morning on the way mm-hmm. to school. So I was like, I need to do something different. I can't just do something that's going to be either pop culture related, which is the stuff we were doing on the show, like relationship related. That's just sort of like, you know, husband and wife fights. I didn't want to do any of that. So. I went to the the easiest possible thing, and that was sex. I was like, let me do a sex podcast, because that's something I would never be able to discuss on the radio. Uh, it's terrestrial radio, mind you. And I had gotten to become friends with a, a professor from NYU, Dr. Jana Rangalova, and she's world-renowned. Um, she got her doctorate in casual sex. Like She's like this world-renowned expert in, in uh, yeah polyamory and, sure. and casual sex and open relationships. And I reached out to her and I said, hey, listen, I'm not sure if you had given any thoughts to hosting a podcast. I know she had appeared on a ton of them, but would you ever host one? And she's like, yeah, I've always done it. And and Jody, you 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 understand this. She always wanted to do it, but she didn't know how. Like, what what do you what kind of equipment do you use? Where do yeah. you record? How do you edit? All that stuff. There's so a lot I, that goes so into I, it. There's a lot more than people think. Yeah, <laughs> they they think it's just talking into micro and you're done. It's it's not. So. It, it was sort of the best of both worlds for her because she was able to get someone to sort of um, be the, the shepherd of of the journey in terms of like doing all the, the, the grunt work of recording and editing and cleaning things up, but also having someone there as a co-host to act as um, an avatar for the uh, audience. Because what the podcast ended up being was called The Science of Sex, and it was me and Jana interviewing sex researchers all over the world about their study. So each episode is like densely populated with all these facts and statistics and studies about their particular expertise. 
And they would have these discussions and I would be sort of the everyman in the conversation. I would be there to keep them honest, to make sure like once they started going into acronym soup, I'd be like, whoa, 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 whoa. nobody understands what you're talking about. Let's let's yeah. stop and, and break this down. That's and also so I was weird. there to add. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and I was there also also to add some levity to the situation because a lot of these studies are very, they're very, uh. You're very academic. You're very dry, very <laughs> academic. So they're not meant to be entertaining. So yeah. I, using my skills of a morning radio person, infusing that into this world of academia, it was it was a great fit. But one of the things I did learn during this process with terrestrial radio, especially during morning terrestrial radio, it's all about like high energy, helping people wake up. You can't have like this super chill NPR personality when you're trying to wake up people What in the middle of playing like Taylor Swift and, you know, you know, uh, Beyonce songs. It just yeah. doesn't work. No. So you have to find your voice that fits that podcast. And so I was never like a screamer or anything like that. But like in terms of like the production and the presentation, it couldn't it had to be just a little more chill. So that's one of the things that I learned in terms of like executing a podcast as opposed to being on terrestrial radio, because people think, oh, it's a transferable skill. You, if you're on the radio, you can also do uh, podcasting. It's it's very different. It's more intimate. It's very much more in that NPR AM talk vein. Um, and so those skills still do cross, though. It's not an exact replica of the, of the, of the, of one of the same, but I felt like I was able to use some of the skills and then I just modified them to fit the podcast format. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And so you wrote a book about this. Mm. So it's yeah. called Good Listen. And I read the book and it's an awesome book. Oh, <laughs> I have thank to you. Say, I really enjoyed it. <laughs> well, it's a quick read. I like to tell people like I didn't want to do something that was crazy long. Like yeah. I'm always one of these people that if I go to the library and I take a book out and I see, oh, that looks cool. And then I'm still like, it's 450 pages. Oh, and then I say to myself, it's going to take me three months to read this. That's quite uh, a so, time commitment. Yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to make something that was short and concise. But my goal was, and I know, Jody, you probably run into people all, this, all the time to have like on their bucket list to write a book. And I never thought I would be that person to write a book. Mm -hmm. But what happened was when I joined uh, Advantage Forbes Books, the company I'm currently with, I produce and coach uh, CEOs and entrepreneurs to be podcasters. And I really took for granted all of the skills I had learned in radio. It, tur it turns out there's a thing called soft skills, which I never even heard of that phrase until I started working in in business podcasts. They're but good all to these have skills, for stuff like this, <laughs> they are. But I didn't really, I didn't even know what that was, Jody. Yeah. I was like, well, what's a soft skill? That's is it because like Play-Doh? I, I have no idea what that means. So it turns out as I was teaching uh, folks how to be podcasters, I was like, this this could be useful for other people. And so I went to the powers that be at, at Advantage Force Books, and they're like. I said, is this a book? And they're like, yeah, that's a book. But what I didn't want to do is I didn't want it to be like a how-to podcasting book or how-to communicate book. I, I intertwined my story. So it was like part memoir, part business book where you can draw lessons from stuff, whether it's successes or the mistakes I made that yeah. could help you today. And so that's how the book came out. And I'm really proud of it because it, it was, again, I never thought I could write a book, but to actually do it and put it out there and just ha like put my voice to paper, which is something... I'm it's so like an anathema to me, you know, it's like everything that has been my voice to your ears, but like to have to, to, to translate your voice into the written word, it's really tricky, but I feel like I hopefully to, and, and you sound like you enjoyed it, pull it off to where it's like, it's my voice. Like it's me talking to the, the reader. It's not be me on, on, you know, trying to, to, to perceive, perceive to be like an expert. Like I don't like to use the word expert. I'm just like, Hey, I've been doing this for a long time. Here's what I learned. Hopefully you can learn from it. And, that, sure. and that's essentially the book. Yeah. I call myself a fellow traveler. <laughs> oh, I, I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Expert to me is like one of those things. Where it's like, it's like 
you can just throw and anyone can call themselves like you ever watch TV. They're like political expert, pop culture expert. Who says like, is there some sort of certification for that? I'm like, yeah, exactly. It's, it's not a thing. So yeah. I, I, I refrain from using guru. that word. Ooh, guru, that's, that's even worse. That's like, no. Yeah. Yeah. No. So yeah. I'm, I'm not, I'm none of that. I'm just a guy who's done it for a while. And hopefully there's a couple of things that you could take away from it. Yeah, definitely. And I think, yeah, you really got the essence of it in the book there because I really enjoyed the personal stories <laughs> that kind of made yeah. it relatable. So you could see examples of what you were talking about in the book, which I really liked. And one of those examples really struck me. And that was when you talked about magic moments. So mm. so those are particularly interesting to me. But I was wondering if you had any magic moment in your actual life you know, rather than interviewing someone that you might recall and and why you think it happened. Hmm. So a non-career magic moment. Non-career. Something, yeah. Just something okay. in your life. Because like a regular conversation, because the book also is for people who want to have regular conversations, right? It's not just about interviewing people on the radio or podcasts. You know, I'm yeah. trying to help people in general get more out of their conversations. Yeah, I mean, I will say one of the magic moments I had in my life was, it was more of it was an extended moment. But uh, back in the early 2000s, my father was diagnosed with Huntington's disease. And so which is if you're not familiar with it, it's horrible. It's like a form of ALS. You, yeah. you, you essentially become a, a prisoner of your own body. And so I was really worried for my father and then also selfishly myself because it's a it's a hereditary disease so there's a 50 50 chance that they could pass it on to the next generation sure so i want to do whatever it took to either raise awareness and then help um my father and potentially myself down the line in terms of like what research can be done because it was, it's a relatively new disease i think it was like discovered in like the 80s or late 90s or like late 80s early 90s so it's it's been around for not too long so it's not like there's a lot of research on it and so one of the things I, I really took on was to become sort of an ambassador for the cause and, you know, raise funds. Um, I ran a marathon, the New York City Marathon for it. And so I I never thought myself again, uh, and people listen to this may think, oh, this guy really has the worst ego in the world. But I never <laughs> thought of myself as someone who could run a marathon. But I was sure. like, what can I do? What can I do to raise money? And um, one of the things you can do is run a marathon and you take you take um, you take donations. So I decided to run the New York City Marathon, which at the time was daunting because at that point, I think I'd only run like five K's, which is only three miles. The New York City Marathon is twenty six point two miles. So that's oh, yeah, you more. Just do that it's, in a it's, day. <laughs> it's more than three. So um, I ended up training for it. Not well. And a magic moment for me was running the New York City Marathon because it's the closest thing you can do to an athletic event that is essentially the same as what professionals do. Because it's the same course. It's the same day. It's the, the same environment that you're running with the greatest runners in the world. Mind you, the greatest runners in the world are doing it in about two and a half hours. It took me four hours to run the New York City Marathon, which not so horrible. And um, just that that day running it, and if folks not familiar, if you ever do any kind of 5K race or a lot of races, it's early in the morning. New York City Marathon's even earlier. You have to report to the site at 6 a.m. in Staten Island in, in early November, two hours before the race. So you are just freezing your butt off waiting to go on this run. And then all of a sudden, they call out your, your number. You go in this pack of like hundreds of runners and they just say, go. And you just run this 26 miles through all five boroughs in New York City. And 
I always tell people you can anybody can run a marathon because just on adrenaline alone running New York City Marathon surrounded by people cheering and screaming while you do it. It's just one of the moments I'll never forget, especially uh, you start in Staten Island and then go to Brooklyn. And the way they, you run through Brooklyn is it's Brooklyn's the biggest borough in New York, but it's the streets are very narrow. And so you're essentially running through people like a crowd of people like are within six inches of you screaming and holding up signs and handing like bananas and, and fruits and stuff like that for you to help. And just the idea of running through Manhattan, having people cheer for you and running alongside all these people who trained all their life, me training six months, but mind you, uh, but just doing that and pulling it off and surviving was such an a magic moment for me because I never thought I could do anything like that. I was never a jock. I think that's how I ended up in radio. It's like I had no athletic ability. Um, so th- th- that was something I could pull off. And uh, it was just something I'll never forget. I ended up running it again uh, two years later because I was like, you know what? I think I could do it better. I ended up doing it one minute better and not a whole lot better. Uh, but that's yeah, that's a lot though. I'm amazed yeah. you did it once, let alone twice. <laughs> twice, yeah. It was wow. it was really cool. And so I always tell people, listen, anybody could do it. Just just an adrenaline alone, you can get through. I mean, trust me, if you have health issues, you probably shouldn't try it. But if you if you're a healthy individual, there's a good chance you could you could finish it in you know a few hours. Uh, I'm thinking I would probably die. <laughs> no, 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 you'd be fine. Jerry. You'd probably do a lot of walking. You'd probably be able to it'd be more of a tour of New York City than yeah, an actual exactly. run. It would take but me you, six I think hours. You would, yeah, that's not bad. Trust me. A lot of people do. I remember when I finished it because you know how celebrities always run every year and they'll at the like the next day they'll print their times. And I was like, I would go, oh, cool. I beat that guy. I beat that guy. I beat that guy. And I was and of course, people were like, yeah, but they were probably stopped by fans and stuff. I'm like, it doesn't matter. I finished before they did. No <laughs> yeah. one's bothering me while I'm running. <laughs> take what you can. <laughs> Absolutely. Live I'll take small success. victories. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> Yes. That's wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. I know we're all dealing with a lot these days, so I really wanted to acknowledge those that have gone out of their way to leave an honest review of this podcast. HSP coach Claire Kumar writes, two levels of learning here. Not only will you hear rich insights as Jody explores each topic, you'll also want to tune in to how to craft a beautiful and effective listening experience. I recommend every podcast host subscribe. Thanks so much, Claire. I really appreciate your review, and I'm so glad you're finding the podcast useful. And now, back to the show. Sort of getting back to the, the conversation like that, that goes into the, the book that you're talking about, because you're talking mm. about um, listening and asking questions from what you hear and that kind of thing. Um, I know that you did a lot of interviews while you were with the radio station and you probably yeah. did a lot of them while you were in the podcast as well. So yeah. I'm curious if there was ever, um, did you ever have a question that was like really kind of invasive? Because I mean, you talk about like being nosy and, and going and doing that, being the one who is nosy so that you get the interesting answers, right? So, so what kind of question did you ask being as nosy as you possibly could be? And, and what yeah. was the response? <laughs> well, I write about this in the book. And so Taylor Swift had come to the studio and it was around the time 
that the Ebola outbreak had taken over. And mm-hmm. it's funny to compare the Ebola to to the actual pandemic we we sort of went through. Where I wish it was more mil- funny. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, well, well, funny in the terms of that people were so. Uh, just it, just in a freaked out state that Ebola would there's a possibility. Yeah. It turned out no, there was a larger freaked out state. <laughs> exactly, much much later. Yes. And so when Ebola came out, it was it was it freaked people out for two things. One is because of the nature of Ebola, like the you know everyone kind of knows the typical movie Ebola ones with the bleeding of the eyes and all, all that horrible things happen. Um, so there it turned out there was one doctor who who I think was, was in Africa or something like that ended up flying to New York and tested positive for Ebola. And it just became this huge story in New York. People were going, people just freaked out of their minds. They're like, Oh my God. I mean, you think people were freaked out if, I mean, if you're, if you don't remember when this happened, you think people were freaked out about the COVID with, which was, you know, a respiratory disease where, you know, it's horrible, but I think bleeding through the eyes might be one of the worst things that could probably happen to you kind of thing. Yeah. Again, I don't know what the actual diagnosis is. I'm going off pop culture, but that's what people think of Ebola when they hear it. Um, so if someone who knows Ebola and listening to this is like, this guy has no idea what he's talking about. I'm like, I'm just going by the movies. Uh, so and of course, that's what most people do. Most people didn't get, you know, do it, get a Ph.D. in uh, you know infectious diseases. So um, so this had just happened a few weeks before um, Taylor Swift had, had, had visited our studio and she was. Um, she was in great spirits. It was Halloween and she came in wearing a Pegacorn costume. So, uh, it was a, yeah, it was a Pegasus slash unicorn costume. So she had wings and she had a horn. It was something she had come up with. Um, so she was in great spirits, but we had kind of gotten off to, a a, 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 not a great note because I was being kind of difficult with her PR person because her, her PR person Made it gave us strict orders that we could only videotape five minutes of this pod of the interview. It wasn't a podcast; it was, it was a live interview, and so I didn't. I wasn't a fan of that. I was like, "This that's not cool. Why can't we just record the whole thing and then we'll post five minutes?" Can I ask so she, one question before you continue yeah. on that? Because I was always confused about this in the book. Did she ever say why? Like, did they ever? Because like, were you recording an hour long interview and then they just only allowed you to videotape five minutes of it, or would yes. like? Yeah, that's oh, the thing. Okay. So most times with artists, you, they're pretty cool because they want the publicity. They want to sure. be able if you if you want to record an hour pod an interview, you go ahead and post it. But Taylor Swift's management is very controlling on what content gets out. Okay. So they so for them to control the narrative was to cap out recording five minutes and stopping. And so the one thing that drove me crazy during this whole process, and I talk about it in the book, is that. A lot of times people are like, hey, listen, can you only post this part of the interview? Only do five minutes. And then we're, and, if, and we're always we were always like, absolutely. Yes, we'll post just this part of the podcast, just part of the interview. I can't say po- interview without saying podcast anymore. I don't know why. <laughs> They're interchangeable. Um, I, I can't. Yeah, true. It's true. But this was actually a, a terrestrial radio. So f- they came at it with from this angle that we could only record the first five minutes. Which, Jody, as you know, and judging by this first interview, the first five minutes are not always great. It, it, takes, some, it takes a while for people to get loosened up and yeah. everything like that. So it really pissed me off that we had to record the first five minutes, which was usually just the, hey, how you doing? What's going on? Are you having a good time? It's just garbage. And so I just was not having any of it. And she had heard me kind of like having this little, I wouldn't say it was an argument. It was, it was more me being very passive aggressive with the uh with the publicist uh, and yes. she heard heard me do this from because she was in the studio talking to the other people on the show and all of a sudden she goes um well isn't someone being very saucy this morning 
And I was like, oh boy, I should stop while I'm ahead. Me thinking Taylor Swift is not listening to what some idiot in the back of the studio is saying to her publicist, but she heard every word I was saying. So going back to the Ebola question, she was on her toes when it came to me when I when it came to me asking any questions. So anytime I would ask a question, she would just zero in, lock in my eyes, and be like, what is this son of a bitch going to tell me right now? What is he going to ask me? Because I, I have a feeling this guy. You. Yeah, she does not trust me <laughs> at all. Uh-huh. Um, and so I end up asking the the only one who's stupid enough to ask was. And at the time, if you recall, and I think even to this day, Taylor Swift is very fan friendly. Like if she goes out to events, she's hugging and kissing and taking photos. Everybody. So she's very fan friendly. This is Ebola. Ebola is you can contract from contact. So I said to her, hey, Taylor, now that you know this is a bolus scare, would that prevent you from hugging your fans? And she was not having that question. She was like, she basically cut me off and said, full stop, I will not stop interacting with my fans because of a slight chance of me getting Ebola. And then the rest of the interview was her keeping her eyes on me the entire time to make sure I was not going to ask another stupid question. And I learned from that experience because... You have to create this environment that the person's comfortable in. That's a, a big part of it. And I don't actually like to use the word interview, especially when I coach people or advise people who are starting podcasts. You don't ever want to use the word interview because interview implies question, answer, question, answer, question, answer. Whereas a conversation, it's a, a back and forth. It's people sharing ideas. And so you want to create this space where people are free to share ideas, comfortable in the room. And pros like Taylor Swift, they're used to dealing with jerks like me. But still, she was she's a human. So she puts herself she puts her walls up to be like, okay, this guy is bad news. He's going to be a a jerk during this interview. So I'm going to act accordingly when he asks a question. And I learned a lot from there because to me, it was just me and uh, just being a a jerk and just trying to like because I still I couldn't understand why the PR people were being so difficult to us. We didn't have a reputation for being difficult to deal with. And it just bothered. Did they ever tell you why? Or it was no, no, it's just something. It, it was a policy they had with all radio stations oh, that they okay. were like, hey, listen, the first five minutes you get this. So if and as I write about, it's a lesson is like create the, the safest place for your guests because you want them to be able to feel like they're of guests in your own house. Like when it's and I always say like it's when, when someone comes over and they want to they want to drink. I'm like, oh, the, go ahead. Go go get something in the fridge. And the, only the most comfortable people will feel comfortable to go actually into your refrigerator, open it up and grab a beverage. The people that are uncomfortable are like, no, 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 you just get it when you want. So you want to create this interview, conversation, podcast experience, what have you to the point where that person feels comfortable to go into your fridge and grab a soda. So, uh, and I didn't do that with Taylor Swift. I, I created this sort of, this environment of edginess and prickliness that, uh, that to this day I've always, whenever uh, any kind of discussion happens that's going to be recorded, I try to make it as friendly and safe as possible. And I think that's super important for people to know. Yeah, definitely. And I can, I can sort of see how that would um, put someone on edge a little in the beginning but it does seem like an odd request though so i sort of get both sides (laughs) yeah no it's super odd and super silly it it really makes no sense but it's just Mm. i mean what happens is when these celebrities get to a certain point they feel like they have all the control because it's it's a take it or leave it situation to to taylor swift to do one less new york radio station would means absolutely nothing to the impact of her career it's to them, it's more of like, hey, we're doing you a solid by having Taylor Swift. Yeah. And as part of us doing, giving you this solid, you're going to get five minutes of video. And that's, 
And, you know, unfortunately, that a lot of celebrities do end up wielding their power. Many don't. Many are just kind of like, oh, yeah, whatever. You know, I always laugh when I when I before a podcast, I'll, I'll say to someone, hey, just so you know, we have an extensive post-production process. We're going to edit, clean up any any mistakes that might happen. And 90 percent of the time, people are like, oh, yeah, that's cool. I don't care. But then there's like the 10 percent like, oh, my God, thank God. That's so that's really good. I, now I, I, I was so nervous about doing this, but now I feel better. Yeah, so. by the way. <laughs> Yeah, we have that going on here oh, too. Whew. So you're all good. Okay. <laughs> good, good. All right. So, so the first 36 minutes, we're gonna have to do some fixing. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but yeah, no. That, I think it's 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 going back to the Taylor Swift thing. It's really just about creating a a, a a a comfort level with your guests so that you're able to share these ideas and ha- and have a, a really meaningful conversation as opposed to an interview. Question answer. Question answer. This has been part one of our interview. I hope you'll tune in next week for part two. Well, that's the end of this episode. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you heard, why not tell a friend about this podcast? It's available in all the usual locations. Until next time.